Welcome, welcome. It is great to have you all here today. It is. Yeah, I have my army voice and I have my church voice. I, again, it's wonderful to join you all here. I know it has been crazy, like week after week. Will he, won't he? Uh, I have two more days. Uh, I'll be leaving uh, early on Tuesday morning. Uh, this has really been a delight in God's providence, to have this time to just like it has been. Uh, we had no idea when we started this series that uh, I would be heading out uh, before it was over. And yet, I think it's really been a sweet time of getting to know you folks a, a good bit better in our exchanges, the conversations we've had afterwards. And Lindsay and I have been reflecting on this, and this is particularly sweet because I'm about to leave. And we feel more, more than ever uh, the glorious weight of having a church family. And that's a wonderful thing, a wonderful thing before we go, before I go. So again, wonderful to be with you all. Let me go ahead and pray to get us started. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, I am grateful for the opportunity to join with all these dear folks as we meditate not only on what you have done in the world and are doing in the world, but also how we can more effectively and faithfully engage the world around us. Casting aside so many false idols of earthly hopes and dreams and leaning upon our Savior who says, Come you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Please bless this time. Help us, Lord, to consider how we might serve you, even as you have first served us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, years ago, when I worked on Capitol Hill, one of my favorite writers, a man by the name of Jonah Goldberg, who writes for National Review, came into town to give a lecture. Uh, I don't remember most of what he talked about. But I remember the very closing line of his, of his lecture, because I found it so enjoyable. He said, after everything else, so cheer up, the worst is yet to come. <laughs> so cheer up, the worst is yet to come. I just really loved that. And I think that's how I need to start off with you all today. Uh, after talking with Lindsay this past week and thinking, what more can I share with you that would be helpful? And I think part of it is to say... Uh, cheer up, the worst is yet to come. I think we need to take a harder and darker look for a few minutes at our culture and at where things are at uh, before we talk about the graces, the beauties um, here, around the world, what the Lord is doing in general, otherwise. These trends are not going to reverse. Barring some sort of miraculous revival, which is always possible in Lord's providence, but that's up to him. These trends are not going to reverse. For those of you who in the 80s and 90s were engaged in the culture wars, I've got hard news. You've lost. The game is over. There is no coming back. And I think we need to understand that. Uh, What those of us who grew up in the 90s and the Northwest, Cali, the Northeast, what we grew up in, as kind of the margins of our culture, that has gone mainstream. Uh, and it's not going to diminish. Uh, what does this look like? It means that there's going to be no elections, no policies that reverse course. 
Our politics is way more superficial than what we're seeing down at the culture. The fact is, what's been happening in the culture, really, for time immemorial, is a continual building, a progression of a philosophy. You could say instead of a progression, it's a digression. But that hasn't changed. You might elect a different figure in the various offices. That doesn't change the underlying worldview and how it's being shaped at the ground level in our culture. It's, politics is remarkably superficial compared to what we're talking about. There will be reactions. There will be reactions. In our culture, it has got become too chaotic in many ways. There's going to be, at various points, reactions where people say, hey, let's strive to re-put together our communities, our families, do things like that. Let's try to reverse course. Uh, but again, uh, these reactions, they'll slow the tide. They won't reverse it. It's pretty hard to dissolve intact families and communities. That's typically the strength of a strong culture. It takes a long time. But we've managed to do it. It takes generations. We've managed to do it. It's even harder to put things back together. Think about it this way. Uh, when the war on poverty started under LBJ, uh, back in, I believe, the 60s, at that time, the black family was just as intact as the white family in terms of marriages, uh, in terms of children born in wedlock. Of course, minorities historically in our country have been disproportionately poor, and the poorer country have been minorities. And so when we launched the war on poverty and made it ultimately profitable to not be married, that disproportionately affected the black family. And starting there, you saw this plummeting of the cohesiveness of black marriages and children born in wedlock. Uh, now the rest of our culture is racing to catch up to those same numbers. But that policy, that wasn't the intention, obviously. No one would intend for that to occur. It's an unintentional consequence. But it took a couple decades. But the disparity became huge in our country. And what that did is it locked people more and more into poverty because you had less of the resources you needed to get up out of it. That was relatively easy. All it took was a, an economic policy. And, of course, that's not the whole picture. It's just a piece of it. But at the same time, you then ask, what policy would say put the family back together? Is there one? Policies can help break these things up. They're not good at putting them back together. That's really an impossible task. It's not something that we can impose from without. It must happen from within. But even then, that's really an individual thing. Uh, In many ways, our country more and more is, re- is resembling A Brave New World, if you've, if you've read that book by Aldo Huxley. In fact, there's a book I love from the 1980s called Amusing Ourselves to Death. It's a sociological classic. It predicted how technology, as it swept in, was going to reshape our culture and reshape our thinking, and it has. Think about how differently we think, we speak everything, because of the rise of modern technology. But the introdu- introduction of that book alone is worth the price of the book, because he's making this case that we're not heading toward 1984. You don't have to worry about Big Brother. The enemy is not going to come at us from without, but from within. It's not the tyrant imposed upon us, it's the tyrant we choose. Uh, It's not power, reckless power being wielded upon us. 
It is this, que- this quest for pleasure, endless pleasure as a distraction from hard realities that's going to be our undoing. And that's largely where we're at in A Brave New World, which I'm actually reading at the moment. You know, they're always going to the feelies at night after work. You are considered absurd uh, if you actually develop attraction and, a, and a attention and an ongoing relationship with somebody. Instead, you're expected to continually move from person to person in your romantic life, in your relational life, and get your pleasure and move on. That's all they are there for, is your pleasure, and then you move on. If you develop anything more than that, you become an outcast and a pariah. Uh, It reminds me of uh, when I got engaged to my wife. I'm not going to say specifically who it was, but she had relatives who were appalled that that we were not living together first. Uh, who said, you know, use these horrible analogies, uh, you know, you need to try the milk before you buy the cow. (laughs) You need to test drive the car before you take it off the lot. All these horrible, trite, useless uh, metaphors for, hey, there should be a lot more pleasure involved here. This should be a lot more casual. You should not jump into something like commitment like this. Again, it's funny when rebellion... uh, as a, as a young adult or as a teenager is, no, mom and dad, I'm going to wait for marriage. Uh, but that's the world more and more we're coming to live in. I don't think folks realize what it is like in our public schools right now. And this is not bashing on public schools. However the Lord leads you in terms of schooling, you go with it as long as you are pouring into your kids. Uh, I think that within my lifetime, probably more than half of people uh, will not identify with any particular se- sexuality. Or at least more, more, more than half of our young adults and our teenagers. I think the majority are going to be people who don't identify with any particular sexuality. And more and more, the numbers are probably going to be going up to people who don't identify with any particular gender. Again, this is in the air we breathe. Sexuality means nothing. Love means nothing. Marriage means nothing. And again, there's a million exceptions to what I'm saying right now. Uh, but all these lines are blurring, and there's nothing that's really going to pull them back apart, except within the church. But even then, we're going to be affected by all this. Uh, marriage, in many ways, will become more and more of an odd thing to do, especially a long-term, consistent marriage. And just like being a Christian, you're going to be the person with a third eye in your head walking down the street uh, for having a consistent, faithful marriage. Polyamory is rampant. I was talking about this uh, with the Protestants this past week. It is rampant. Uh, Open marriages are everywhere right now. Everywhere. And that is only going to increase. I just recently read a column, basically why dating sucks in San Francisco. And one of the reasons why people don't like dating there is because everyone wants to be poly. Uh, This, again, is the world we live in. And don't think that's going to change. One of the, I think one of the really hard things, this is one of the reasons why right now this generational distinction including within the church is so hard right now. Uh, if you remember a time before things started really accelerating here in these trends, you pine for that time. You have this sense of nostalgia. You kind of wish we'd go back to the 80s when all we were doing was talk about Star Wars. Uh, and, or before then. For those of... Those who were not really children during that era, for those who I think started coming of age in the 90s, they actually partially inoculated against this. They saw a lot of these things growing up. Uh, even if you were homeschooled, these were 
These things, these things still seeped into your household. You were exposed to them. And this is what you often see, the difference between those, say, about 40 and over and 40 and below. And that's completely arbitrary age. But it's kind of tracking the whole 80s thing. Uh, if you're 40 and above, you see all these trends, and it likely scares you. Uh, it likely makes you angry and bitter and resentful. What is happening to this culture? This is not the country I remember. This is not the country I was raised in. People can't even name like our first couple of presidents. Like, and it's henny penny, the sky is falling. In general, those who are younger, instead of pining for what we could have, because they don't really know any differently, they say, well, this is where we're actually at. So what do we do? How do we engage it? Uh, Cheyenne, that was actually something I really appreciated that we were talking about this past week. In a coffee shop, every single day, you were engaging this. You can't think, man, I wish things were more like when I was a kid. I mean, that wasn't too long ago. Uh, because things weren't that different then. Instead, every day you're saying, well, here's where we are. How do I faithfully engage this? And in turn, that often creates tensions at times within the generations and our churches, too. Because we're in very different places about how we view the culture and how we engage it. Uh, and that's natural. I think we need to give uh, one another grace with regard to that. Uh, our kids are not, a lot of times, not too lax. Our young adults are not too lax as they're engaging these things. They're trying to figure this out with wisdom. And meanwhile, we are losing something here. And so for those of you who feel that, and I feel that a little bit too. I'm not, you know, I'm 36. Uh, I feel that loss too. And we need to be gracious to those who feel that sense of loss and are upset about it. Uh, but let's put this in perspective for a moment. So let's talk. So that was my opening diatribe. Cheer up, the worst is yet to come. Let's put this for a second in historical perspective. We'll also put it in global perspective. Uh, Historically, things were never that great. Uh, there's a book by Thomas Kidd, a uh, religion professor at Baylor called God of Liberty, where he talks about our founding. And even then, Christianity was a minority. I don't think we get this. We often talk about our Christian founding. No, Christians were a minority even then by most any measure you come out with. Let's say church attendance, like regular church attendance. Christians were a minority even then, and they always have been in our country. In pretty much any country, even countries that are very Christianized, a lot of what you're seeing is nominal Christianity. Only part of it is actually real vital Christianity. And by the way, most of the theology, not most of it, but a lot of it during that era was also gross. Uh, a lot of the theology that was used to justify our founding, and by the way, I love our founding. I love our country. We're an island of liberty in a historical sea of tyranny. But a lot of the theology that was being preached from the pulpits leading up to the revolution was America as the new Israel. We are the new promised land. It was this horrible blurring of biblical, biblical truths with uh, these civil ideas. You know, obviously the church is the new Israel. This is God's chosen people, the church of God. Uh, already things were bad. George Washington valued his chaplains for preaching non-sectarian sermons that applied to all religions alike. Even then, religion was often being exploited for a founding, for a, uh, a revolution, uh, for morale and morals within the military. And this has often been the case in American history. The one great American philosophy that we've come up with in America, not surprising, is pragmatism. Uh, this is one of the great things that separates us, say, from our British counterparts. That, that's more of a philosopher culture. Uh, they really value the professor. Uh, we are a pragmatic culture. We value the engineer. We value what works. 
the father of American pragmatism was William James. And he said, truth finds its cash value in experiential terms. Truth finds its cash value in experiential terms. In other words, what works is what's true. That's very American. But this theme has really been prevalent throughout our history. The Civil War. This church is for slavery. This church is against slavery. This church is for the South. This church is against the South. Constantly lining up in accordance with social and political causes. And oftentimes known for that. Denominations dividing and putting, and putting themselves back together over these sorts of issues. Oftentimes the church was a means to an end. Again, not always. There's plenty of notable exceptions. But I'm just highlighting some of these, the dark side of our past uh, with regard to the state of the church. After all this, in the 20th century, moralism reigned. It was, be a good person. Uh, instead of Simon says, Uncle Sam says, uh, be like Jesus. He, he didn't die for your sins. He's a moral example that you follow. Be, so you should be like him. All this moralizing of people. It was hollow. Uh, our grandparents', grandparents generation, kind of that era, I think Great Depression, the greatest generation, wonderfully heroic generation, but a lot of it was hollow in terms of where this morality and do, do-goodness actually comes from. And that worked in America, and everybody cherishes it. Think about the greatest generation, how lovely so much of that was. You know, they all rise to the call of arms. And yet, it really only works, this hollow moralism, when you're not existentially threatened. We weren't existentially threatened in World War I. That was very remote and far away from us. We basically came in at the end of the war to save the day. Uh, World War II, even, we got hit in Hawaii. Probably before that, I imagine there's still quite a few people in our country who didn't even know who, where Hawaii was on a map. Uh, and yes, the West Coast in particular did fortify a bit in case of possible Japanese attacks. But even so, there was this mentality, like, they hit us, and we're going to come in, and we're going to lay them out. Like, America's in it to win it, and we're going to do that. And that's why the rise of postmodernism largely came with the Watergate era, the Vietnam era. That was the existential threat. Wait a second, I don't think we're going to win this war. Wait a second, the Soviet Union seems to really be getting more powerful than us. I'm not sure we're going to be able to get more powerful than them again. America's best days are behind us. You know, we're now enjoying a time of malaise, uh, as Jimmy Carter would say. That wasn't his exact wording. Uh, But it makes sense that the hippies would roll out the beach blankets, would smoke the doobies, uh, all that stuff. They had no categories, no means of processing all the existential threats with these hollow moralisms. And they did what they did. For me, there's a logic to what they did. Do I like it? No, not at all. They really messed messed over my generation. But I get it. All these things, in a sense, built upon each other. There's no such thing as a golden age or a dark age. And what the hippies, in a sense, inaugurated, when they overthrew the moral establishment, Gen X codified it. Uh, And now we've, in a sense, normalized that millennials, it's now our way of life. There's nothing revolutionary about it, as we talked about the first week. I go through that historical overview to simply point out things were never that great. Uh, I often pine for the 1950s, suburban Americana, uh, intact families, because the culture I grew up in did not have that. People just loved each other more. 
And then I go and I listen to uh, Beverly Cleary books on tape in her car, you know, whenever we're driving around with the kids. And like, you know, Henry Huggins and Ramona and Beezus, and I'm not sure if any of you guys remember those books. But listening these the small town to all these nagging, gossipy, judgmental mothers, like constantly cowing their children. It sounds horrible. I'm like, if our kids didn't enjoy this, I'm like, Lindsay, let's turn this off. I can't stand it. Like, if I was, if I grew up in that day and age, as soon as I hit 18, I would have been moving to the big city. Like, it was just, it grated so much. And Lindsay was like, we spell everything out so our kids don't know what we're saying to each other. She was like, you are an H-Y-P-O-G-R-I-T-E. <laughs> uh, you venerate this time, and yet you're showing exactly why in many ways it wasn't working at the same time. Uh, why things did change as they did. Uh, it is a historical fallacy to believe in golden ages and dark ages. By the way, the early church was a mess. I, it drives me crazy, and people say, let's just go back to the way things were in the early church. Oh, okay. So we're talking about Corinth, when they're engaging in really shady immoral practices. Are we talking about Galatia, where they're adding on to the gospel and are being horribly legalistic? Uh, and there's no such thing as dark ages either. Again, there's nothing new under the sun. And we often engage in this thinking. Uh, no, the 1950s weren't that great, nor were the 1980s. There's things I like about them. There's things I don't. Uh, only one of them I actually lived through. Uh, the same with today. There's strengths, there's weaknesses. Am I sad about a lot, about a lot of these changes? Yes, because frankly, my generation, church context, was very messed over by, uh, by a lot of these changes. Most of us grew up in broken homes and broken communities. We were taught that love is conditional, and a lot of us don't know how to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. That stinks. At the same time, I am really excited to live in this day and age because it's a lot harder to use Christianity as a means to an end. We've talked about this before. I, Christianity, if it, unless it is true, unless it is vital, unless it is something that your life is built upon, unless you know Jesus is your Savior and realize that he died for you, and if need be, taking it to the extreme, you'd be willing to die for him, why would you do it? Why would you do it in our culture with increasing stigma? And not a lot of you in your workplaces right now are facing extreme restrictions regarding your ability to vocalize your faith. Uh, you've got to really believe it. T.S. Eliot said there's no such thing as lost causes because there's no such thing as gained causes. There's no such thing as lost causes because there's no such thing as gained causes. When before this had we actually arrived? Yeah. There was not such a time. What are we really losing here? If your goal here is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, how has that changed? How has that mission changed? And if God is still, as we saw in Acts last week, if He is continually working by word and by spirit under King Jesus to build and preserve and keep His church through all ages and the gates of hell will not prevail... When and how did that storyline change? It hasn't. There's no such thing as lost causes because there's no such thing as gained causes. We are Christians, not utopians. Those who aspire to create heaven on earth through their own efforts inevitably create hell. That is the story of 20th century communism and socialism. When you trust 
mankind with godlike powers, that is what he does. He may remix the earth in his own depraved image, inevitably. We are not trying to recreate Eden. Uh, we recognize we live in the wilderness. The desire to recreate Eden, these utopian ambitions to creating this beautiful society, whatever that's supposed to look like, this Christian society, as if you could actually have such a thing. Uh, guess what? That's what got Adam and Eve in trouble in the first place. You shall be his gods. So historical perspective. Hopefully that tempers our henny-penny-the-sky-is-falling mentality with regard to current culture. Even as it is fraying. Religious liberty... Within our lifetimes, probably, it's going to be a thing of the past, by and large. Okay. Does that stink? Yeah, I love our country. I'm a student of our founding. Uh, At the same time, they can't tell me who I believe. And ultimately, what, you know, just like Job said, God gives life, the Lord takes life, and the the Lord gives life, and he takes it away. May the name of the Lord be praised. The Lord gives liberty, the Lord takes it away. May the name of the Lord be praised. We can abide by that. Now, global perspective. Just again, temper, just from a worldly perspective in a sense, because ultimately we don't want to base this on what we see and what we feel, but I want to give you guys a good news story about what God's doing around the world to temper some of our doom and gloom here. First of all, you can get a lot of statistics that are really helpful and interesting from the Center for the Study of Global Christianity. Uh, It's a Organization is a program uh, done out of Gordon-Conwell Seminary, the Center for the Study of Global Christianity. You can just Google them and find a lot of cool statistics. You know, it's no wonder that China is right now in certain places vigorously jailing Christians. We know this. We've been tracking some of these churches. Why? Well, one, because communism, being a materialistic religion, cannot coexist with Christianity. They just can't. Uh, Two, because right now, approximately, as best we can tell, about 10,000 people a day are becoming Christians in the underground church in China. 10,000 a day. Again, just a drop in the bucket of a country that's like 1.3 billion. But that's still incredible. It's alarming for Chinese authorities. And they're projecting, I think it's within about the next 50 years, so for some of us, this might be in our lifetime, there will be more Christians in China than members of the Communist Party. Do you think that scares them? Yes. That's a good news story in China. The Middle East, the gospel is far more active than we'd often perceive. We think of this as like this, you know, it's just simply, we look at the Islamic tyranny that you often see in the Middle East. In approximately the past 20 years, and there was a good column about this in Gospel Coalition about a year ago, in the last 20 years or so, in Iran, approximately 1 million people have bowed the knee to Christ. In Iran. By the way, that's a far higher rate than anywhere in the West. In Iran. Uh, the U.S. is not only the top sender of missionaries in the world, in part because we're the largest country in terms of mission senders, uh, we are also the top recipient. I think the last uh, report showed that approximately 32,000 missionaries are coming into our country each year from other countries. In the beginning of Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, he mentions the fact, I think in the last, say, 20 years, I think it was maybe 1,000 churches have been planted in New York City alone by, by immigrants. Uh, South Korea sends far more missionaries than we do as a percentage of their Christians. They send more missionaries to the Middle East than anybody. Uh, at times, they, I mean, in terms of like per church missionary sending, 
they've often surpassed this. They have for about, I think, the past 10 or 15 years. Uh, and by the way, that ball got rolling in the early 1900s, in large part through pre- uh, Presbyterian missionaries over there. But I mean, you see this in my own seminary. Several of our professors are Korean. Our president of our seminary is Korean. Uh, a lot of the support for our seminary comes from Korean churches down in SoCal. Uh, again, that's fascinating. Uh, Brazil has been exploding the last 10 or 20 years. There's been, in a sense, a Protestant, even Presbyterian revival in Brazil. Their top university, like their Harvard right now, has been taken over by Calvinists. Uh, and they're one of the big missionary centers to the United States right now. I remember going to an Embers to a Flame conference. It's a church revitalization conference. And several of the people there studying, studying there at that conference with me were Brazilian missionaries to the United States. Palestine tops the list in terms of per capita mission sending. Per capita, Palestine sends out more missionaries than anywhere else in the world. There are more Anglicans in Nigeria than all the West combined. And by the way, in Africa, people tend to be a lot more Orthodox than they do in the West. Uh, there's more confessional Presbyterians in Malawi, a landlocked country the size of Pennsylvania, than in all of America. Think about it. PCA, 350,000. OPC, 30,000. Even dinkier denominations, you know, like you know, a couple thousand here, a couple thousand there. Uh, let's say we have about half a million total. In Malawi, Africa, you have approximately two million, this small country the size of Pennsylvania. Uh, two editors from The Economist years back wrote a book called God is Back. Uh, Economist, you know, a secular economic magazine, cultural magazine for, uh, based out of Europe. And they're highlighting this trend right now. Religion in general, including Christianity, is exploding throughout the world. Yes. That's a great question. No such thing as a golden age, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, for example, like right now, in Africa, you have hundreds of millions of Christians. It is exploding at exponential rates. And yet you, you hear this phrase, a mile wide and inch deep. That's why one of my passions is the equipping of pastors in Africa. Uh, that's one of the greatest things we could give them. Uh, most of the time, they don't want our materials anymore. The African Union at points has even said, we don't want your aid. Uh, because it generally corrupts their economies and they become reliant upon it. Uh, but what they could really use uh, are, is training for their pastors so that people are getting the word of God in its fullness, the whole counsel of God. So yeah, there's those sorts of issues. The health and wealth gospels, un, it's not a gospel, false gospel, uh, is right now very prevalent throughout the world, especially in third world countries. Uh, it's appealing. Hey, if you become a Christian then, and you're faithful, God will bless you all these things. For people who are impoverished, that's a materialist dream. Uh, they just forget that... What's that? That's part of it. Again, the two go together. Christianity is exploding throughout the world. Uh, but there, just as in every age, there's corruptions of it. There's heresy that's being perpetuated in various places. A lot, of, I mean, a lot of it's being perpetuated by us. Where did the health and wealth gospel come from? Uh, Oftentimes, like in Malawi right now, their church is really under attack, and they're compromising a lot of issues. They were a bastion of orthodoxy in that part of Africa for a long time. But the PCUSA offers a lot more money than we do. Uh, we'll send over a lot more missionaries, a lot more teachers than we do. Uh, that has effects. And so that's, theologically, they're being compromised. 
So you've seen those things around the world too. That's why I'm so grateful they're sending missionaries back our direction. Uh, but regardless of all this, even if God was not doing this, would he still be God? I read, I finally read Elizabeth Elliot's classic Through the Gates of Splendor not long ago. And I, again, I don't know why it is. I often like the end of speeches, uh, the end of books. And her epilogue to that book, you know Elizabeth Elliot, her husband died, uh, martyred for the Christian faith in Central Africa in the 1950s, along with several others. She and, her, she and several other wives went back into that, that remote tribe that murdered her husband and their husbands. It continued to share the gospel with them. A bunch of them embraced the Christian faith. Missionaries, especially in America and throughout the West, were so inspired. Like people were, that the missions movement exploded. And she says in her epilogue, what if the Warani tribe weren't saved? What if missionaries throughout our country hadn't been, hadn't, you know, flung themselves to the far ends of the world? What if none of this had happened and my husband had just been martyred? Would God still be God? In other words, like some, because people kept saying, even in her later years, look at all these great things that God did through this. Obviously, this is what made it worthwhile. She said, who cares? Would my God still be God if he allowed that to happen and none of the rest of this happened? Uh, Pastor Brett has made that point uh, to Lindsay and I at times when we've met with him for counseling as well. Uh, and this is, I'm, I'm butchering whatever you would have said, Pastor Brett. But in essence, for the person who grew up with trauma, let's say they were assaulted as a kid, do all of them grow up to be founders and leaders of nonprofits? Is what they went through, and perhaps in the grace they've experienced, is all that negated by the fact that they didn't do something heroic with their suffering? Uh, and that's actually a really helpful message for those of us who have grown up in broken households. Uh, why can't God just be God? He was there in the suffering, and, we, and perhaps we look to his word to understand his heart, his character, his ways, rather than our circumstances for redemption. Pathways forward. So how then shall we live? Recognize these, these things. One, the worst is yet to come. Two, historically speaking, it was never that great. Three, God is actually doing a lot of really cool things throughout the world. How then shall we live? One, embrace the ordinary. What has the Lord called you to now in your season of life? Right now, if your family is underwater, if you guys are barely treading water, maybe you should not be engaged in some sort of great evangelistic endeavor. If you are struggling, if you are underwater, maybe you shouldn't be volunteering for the next ministry, at least yet. Cultivate your own heart before the Lord. Go and get counseling from Pastor Brett. Go out for a beer after his, uh, I guess, paternity leave or whatever, with, with uh, soon-to-be Pastor Brian. Uh, meet in fellowship with fellow believers. Have people care for your heart. Spend, time, you know, spend more robust time in the word and in prayer with the Lord. Just cultivate your heart so that you, then you can give to your family. And cultivate your family so you can then give to the body of believers. And as you're cultivating those bonds of fellowship with the body, bond, body of believers, then start feeding in other people outside our church as well and caring for them. It has to go in that order. I constantly tell people, and soldiers really resonate with this, uh, if your family is not behind you, you can't deploy even once. 
if your family's not behind you, it is going to be a miserable experience, and you're not going to be able to effectively, really effectively serve your country. If your family is behind you, you can deploy six times. You'll probably be all right. Uh, you've got to do it together. When Lindsay and I are fighting when I'm out in the field, miserable. Try counseling people on largely the same issues that you're undergoing in your own marriage. <laughs> not fun. Uh, when we are a team, and this happened last year, February in many ways was miserable, and then we came back in March and we did some counseling at Pastor Brett, and then in April, we were on a much better footing. And that actually was a really good time apart. It's still hard, but maritally it was strong. It went well. Uh, so again, that order, beware that temptation to go out and do something great for Jesus while neglecting the small things while neglecting your own heart and neglecting your own family. I, f- I fear we do that all the time. And remember the proper order, too, of those three pillars of the church, worship, fellowship, outreach. If you're not feeling close to Jesus, you shouldn't be going and engaging in a service project, first and foremost. You should be coming and sitting in the pew, getting fed by the word of God. I constantly tell people, you've got to feed before you can lead. Uh, that is your first responsibility as a Christian, to come here what God has to say. Let him speak into your heart and to your life. And then fellowship and then outreach. So that's the first piece. Embrace the ordinary. Michael Horton has a great book on this called Ordinary. You can move mountains by leading your family in worship around the dinner table. Yes, ma'am. And for women, uh, Abigail Dodds just released Atypical Woman. Atypical Woman. is one word with that title, right? Okay. Okay. Yeah, so atypical woman, atypical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and Lindsay's really loving Abigail Dodds right now uh, as a female speaker into these issues. Uh, embracing the ordinary. Uh, if you're a janitor, you are stewarding God's creation. Clean those floors to the glory of God and let people know that you're taking joy in it. If you're an accountant, you are reinforcing the fact that we are living in a world of order. You help balance those books. And you do it to the glory of God. And that leads me to the other pathway forward. Out of the ordinary comes this call to consecrate to the culture. This phrase comes from Jake Gresson Machen. He's got a great uh, article on it from back in the day. He said, here's what most Christians are doing. Theological liberals are compromising when they're facing this pressure, uh, these temptations, these hardships on the outside. They're compromising on their faith and on the truths of Scripture. On the other hand, fundamentalists are capitulating. They're running for the hills. They're abandoning the academy. Uh, they're abandoning mainstream culture. They're basically throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Everything's evil. Uh, that isn't specifically happening within the church unless it is particularly sanctified and holy. We avoid even the appearance of evil. Uh, and they race off for the hills and, and live in their holy huddles. Complete, and we're, we're tempted to do this at times too, by the way. Uh, he said, if you, if you force me you folks are trying to get a good quote for your papers. If you force me to choose between the two, like which one of these am I, I'm definitely going to tell you I'm a fundamentalist because they still believe in God's word and believe that Jesus is their savior. Uh, but it's an unfair question. And they end up calling him the great fundamentalist. He's, not, he's like, I'm not a fundamentalist. Frankly, both of them are often using the church as a means to an end. For the theological liberals, it was to create a social utopia. For the fundamentalists, it was creating this mythical idea of a Christian America, by which they meant Christian morality, like William Jennings Bryan and those folks. He said the church isn't a means to an end. 
are it is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The church is not the handmaiden for some political or social movement. We've had to realize this anew recently. And frankly, we should be listening a lot more to our young adults right now when it comes to politics and culture. Um, because again, I think we've often gotten those lines confused. Consecrate, Mature would say, instead we consecrate the culture. We don't capitulate, we don't compromise, we consecrate the culture. Which means, as I was just saying, you go janitor to the glory of God. You go account to the glory of God. You be a mother around the dinner table to the glory of God. You go and do these things wherever you are. You take whatever the Lord has for you and say, how can I offer this up to him in worship? Get back into the academy, you nerds. You, you creative types, start creating art again that reflects the truths of God in this world. Let's not retreat, nor do we need to bow the knee to bail. Get up, get going, and engage people and the culture around you to the glory of God with joy and love in your heart. I've got good examples of this. I think there's plenty uh, that we can look to. But let me give prominent examples, recognizing that for a lot of us, it'll be far more ordinary. Uh, one is in my own household. My wife writes parenting comps for the Washington Post, repackaging oftentimes biblical wisdom in kind of common grace forms. I think that's wonderful. Washington Post, you know their bias, their partisan bent. Their byline is, democracy dies in darkness. And yet my wife has a voice in the pages of WAPO. Uh, much more well-known outside of our church is Tim Keller. Uh, Tim Keller, a pastor shepherding a Presbyterian, traditional Presbyterian church in New York City in Manhattan, writing wonderful books, by the way, and I, met, I mentioned that to Pat earlier, most of everything he has is gold. Is gold. He's engaging in a slightly more highbrow audience because he's, he's working in Manhattan, but he is spot on in terms of engaging the thought patterns of our culture. This past year, he was invited to speak to Parliament in England and defend the historical usefulness of Christianity in the world. Prime Minister Theresa May was sitting there. Uh, and he gave a pretty good defense. You can YouTube that. Uh, he also was invited to speak at Google, at Google headquarters, and explain to, to them, in a sense, why skepticism falls apart. Uh, and basically to challenge skepticism on skeptics on their own faith assumptions. And Google. This, again, not known as like a bastion of evangelical orthodoxy. The New York Times has, has basically said, you know what, we might disagree with him on most everything, but he's obviously someone worth listening to. You can still have a voice. Again, these are very prominent. For us, a lot of the times, our voice is going to come in very small, modest ways. The point is, you can still labor faithfully to the glory of God. Again, with my conversation with the process this past week, Cheyenne, that's what you're trying to do each and every day. The fact is, we don't need a retreat. We figure it out. We learn in the school of suffering and with wisdom, uh, with faithfulness, as best as God guides us by word and by spirit, we engage the culture around us. Uh, we do so with the joy of the Lord. We've got two minutes left. I'm going to give you a quick hypothetical scenario. Because I want to talk about practi- uh, practicing these things for a second. Let's say you had a coworker named Larry. And uh, you come out to the parking lot at the end of a long Friday. You're finally out for the week. You're done with work. And you see Larry at the parking lot, and he's looking really downcast. You can tell. And naturally, you say, hey, Larry, what's up? 
Larry says, well, I just found out I'm going to be fired. My boss found out that I had a DUI a couple years ago, and he says he doesn't want a criminal working for him. And so he said, I've got to clean out my office by next Friday. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to explain this to my family. What do you say? Buck up, dude. <laughs> Buck up, dude. That's a very 20th century answer, brother. Uh, but sometimes, especially in the Army, people just need that pep talk, that boot in the butt. Uh, what else could we say? Is his grief, is his anxiety real? Uh, our temptation is often to say, well, let me tell you about all these other professional opportunities. Let me try to fix this for you. Uh, is the issue for him that he's about to be laid off? What's more important, the event or the circumstance, or the feeling and thought about it, that event and circumstance? The latter. Always the latter. Our real theology, our real worldview, is shown through how we think and feel about our circumstances, our actual beliefs. And so what are you trying to engage here? Uh, his job loss or his anxiety? his depression, his concern, his worry. And how do you find out about that there in a the parking lot? Are there things you can say that encourage him to speak a little more? Can you ask questions? In general, 90% of the time you're engaging people, it should probably be with questions. That's one of the mistakes we make all the time. Or use statements that act as questions. Brother, you look really sad. Guess what? When you say something like that, that is a question disguised as a statement. Because he will not just leave that in silence. He will say, uh, either he will disagree with you, like, nah, I'm really more angry or bitter, or no, I'm actually doing all right right now. Or he'll say, you know, you're right, and maybe talk a little bit more. So questions, or statements that act as questions. You show empathy. You may talk a little bit about the basics. Now, remind me how many kids you have? Uh, Remind me how long you've been working here. Are you going to get particularly deep there in a the parking lot? No. Don't try. Uh, venue is important, where we're at. This is not the place to have that deep conversation. Uh, will you be able to potentially move it to another venue? Hey, brother, would you like to go out for a beer later this week and talk about this? Or, hey, would you and Marie and the kids like to come over our house, to our house for dinner? Let's change the venue where we can get deeper and dirtier. Uh, and by the way, something I love to do with people is close them with a positive encouragement. God gives us common grace to a whole variety of people. Have we already seen a strength in Larry simply in this brief exchange? What's the strength? Bingo. Thank you. Uh, wonderfully picked that up. He cares about his family. Um, how am I going to tell my family? That's one of his biggest points of concern, and oftentimes someone's biggest point of concern or stress or anxiety is also, it's the thing that matters the most to them. And we could turn around and highlight that strength. Obviously, that means a lot to you. Your family means a lot to you. By the way, Larry, I'm just really encouraged by that. Uh, I hope in seasons like that, when I'm really struggling, uh, I can have that sort of love and care for my family as well. Uh, you know, offer to pray with them. And then you transition to a new venue, and that's when you get into background. You know, have, you got, have you guys gone through this before? Uh, what has that felt like? Did you go, grow, deal with this growing up at all? 
What was that like? How did your parents get through it? What beliefs anchored you? And all of a sudden we're talking about beliefs too. Mostly using questions. And all of a sudden you have an ordinary, faithful, gospel-oriented relationship uh, that you'll be able to sustain in the weeks, months ahead maybe. Larry might have lost his job. He's at least gained a friend. And maybe he'll gain a savior too. Again, if you want to have conversations offline, please let me know. I love my time with you all. The Lord bless you and keep you in the months ahead. Let's pray. Lord, we do live in a pretty broken society. We've, we live in a wilderness, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We live in tents and tabernacles, looking forward to a city whose builder and maker is God. One of the reasons why we're often concerned about the changes in culture is because really, we value our earthly citizenship more than our heavenly one. Ultimately, we are living for this city and not the city we were truly made for. Please forgive us for such idolatry, uh, for not living for your eternal city. We live in the wilderness, and yes, you are at work, and blossoms and blooms are being planted in this wilderness, yet we still find ourselves discouraged. You've planted us here for this season. Help us to embrace it. Help us to delight in the work that you are doing in us and through us. Help us to delight that in the midst of this wilderness we have a Savior who is already tilling the garden of faith in our own hearts. Lord, we pray that you would make us faithful, make us winsome. Give us love and compassion. We should never be approaching this culture and our neighbors and our co-workers with fear and resentment. Forgive, forgive us if that's our heart. Help us long with every fiber of, our, fiber of our being out of the love that you've poured upon us in Jesus Christ to engage the culture around us with joy and with hope. Because nothing about what's happening right now has in any way obscured or diminished your saving purposes in this world. And Lord, pr- please prepare our hearts for the ministry of your word and the Lord's Supper uh, in the next while. Help us to have open hearts and ears as Pastor Brett humbly, as your ambassador, shares with us uh, the truths of God from God himself. Help us to hear our good shepherd's voice. And help us, Lord, to respond. Help us to draw comfort from the fact that you will never let anyone snatch us from your hand, including ourselves. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.